0: One of the favorite sites to visit in the land of Israel for many Christians is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is located on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, almost down in the bottom of the Kidron Valley. It's just a little bit up the hill on the Mount of Olives. There is still a small grove of olive trees at the side of the garden, and some of the trees there are very, very old. It is possible that one or two may date back to the time of Jesus because of the way olive trees reproduce and grow. Regardless, it's a beautiful and peaceful site just a stone's throw away from the busy and hectic old city of Jerusalem. There is a church that has been built at that site called the Church of All Nations, and it commemorates our Lord's final night during which he prayed so fervently and in such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press or olive press. And in Jesus' day, the word was used to refer to the huge stone that was placed upon the sacks of olives to squeeze out the oil from the precious olives. In the same way, When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of the burden that was upon him was so great that it squeezed out of him his own blood. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. We see that gripping scene in the text to which we come this morning. So please turn with me, if you are not already there, to Mark chapter 14. And please follow along as I read verses 32 through 42 Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 32 Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I pray and he took Peter James and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then Jesus came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy And they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is where my own inadequacy plagues me and haunts me. There is absolutely no way I can bring out the deep truths that are inherent in this passage. But I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would illumine our understanding in a profound way. As we read these words, it is very, very late in the evening, maybe even past midnight... Earlier in the evening, Jesus had celebrated his final Passover with his disciples. At the end of the celebration, they sang a song and left Jerusalem to go across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. As they were going, Jesus told the eleven disciples that all of them would forsake him on this night. He knew what was coming, but the disciples did not. Thus, he was trying to prepare them for what was coming, but they insisted that there was no way they would ever forsake him. That brings us to this text before us. Jesus took his men to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus often met with his disciples, according to John chapter 18, verse 2. That's why Judas knew where to find them later in the evening or early in the morning, however you want to say it. The disciples may have assumed that Jesus was taking them there just to get away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds that were in Jerusalem for Passover. But Jesus had more in mind. He took them there to pray while he prayed in preparation for what would be the most difficult time in his life and even his existence. He knew that it would not be long before he would be nailed to a cross And he would become sin for us. And what he dreaded most wasn't the beating or the punching or the scourging or even the crucifixion. What he dreaded most was being separated from his father as his father poured out his holy wrath against sin. That's what was weighing on Jesus as he led his men to the Garden of Gethsemane for a time of prayer. Notice how Mark describes it, (coughs) beginning in verse 32. He says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Jesus took all of his eleven disciples with him from the upper room, across the Kidron Valley, to gethsemane judas was already gone because he left while the group was still gathered in the upper room jesus dismissed judas from his presence for eternity judas had hardened his heart and made his choice and he would face the consequences but the other eleven disciples were true disciples true believers judas never was Jesus made that clear in John six seventy, when he said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Then John adds this editorial comment. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Judas never really surrendered his heart and life to the Lord Jesus. He followed Jesus for what he could get, <coughs> get out of the deal. He was in it for himself. He was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom. And Judas wanted to be one of the insiders. That's why he followed Jesus for so long. But when it became obvious to Judas that Jesus wasn't going to establish the kingdom at that time, Judas decided to get what he could for Jesus. So he arranged the betrayal with the chief priests and he knew exactly where to find Jesus On this night after Passover, Jesus took his men, the other 11, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He instructed them to wait for him at a certain spot, and then he took Peter, James, and John with him to pray. Verse 33 tells us, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. If you are familiar with the gospel records, then you are aware of the fact that Jesus had a unique relationship with Peter, James, and John. James and John are the two sons of Zebedee mentioned here in this verse, along with Peter. It's not that Jesus loved these three men more than he loved the others, but he had a unique role for them to play in the future. Therefore, Jesus spent more time preparing these men than he spent with the other 11 disciples, or the other, what would that be? The other three minus Judas, four, so the other eight disciples. For example, back in chapter 9, we have the record of the transfiguration of Jesus, and, the, and on that occasion, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him on the high mountain to witness the event. In chapter 5, we have the account of Jesus Raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And once again, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him for the occasion. So it was not uncommon for Jesus to pull these men into situations that he knew would be important for them and be a part for them to be a part of and to experience. That's what we see here in chapter 14. Jesus brought all the disciples with him to the garden. But then he took Peter, James and John along to where he was going to be praying. Luke 22:44 tells us he was in agony, and that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke, who was a doctor, may have been suggesting a dangerous condition. Known as as hematidrosis, the effusion of blood into one's perspiration. It can be caused by extreme anguish or physical strain. Capillaries dilate and burst mingling blood with sweat. The word troubled or distressed in this verse describes a feeling of terrified amazement. Jesus knew He knew he was going to be facing God's righteous wrath against sin. No wonder Jesus said in the next verse that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. His sorrow was so intense that it had the potential to cause his death right then. Think about that. The intensity of our Lord's sorrow was such that it just about killed him right there in the garden. God help us if it doesn't make us shudder. Verse 34 tells us, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. This is so rare to see Jesus in this way. What I mean is, he has always been the one who was there for the disciples. He was their confidence and their rock and their strength, but now he is reaching out to them for strength and encouragement. He is the one who is expressing his overwhelming distress. Again, let me emphasize that His sorrow and his distress wasn't because he was afraid of what the soldiers were going to do to him or what the leaders were going to do to to him. He was in anguish because he knew it would not be long until he would experience the full cup of God's holy wrath against sin. Jesus had never experienced God the Father's holy wrath. And there had never been any breach in the relationship between the Father and the Son, because Jesus had never sinned. So what Jesus was about to go through was something that he had never had to face and would never have to face again. Beloved, we cannot relate to how awful this was for Jesus to anticipate because we are sinners. We don't know what it's like to have perfect harmony with the Father we don't know what it's like to have perfect, unbroken fellowship. But that's all Jesus had ever known. What he was about to experience was something totally foreign to the eternal Godhead. There is no way, no way I can put into words how horrific this experience would be for both the Father and the Son. That's why Jesus was so sorrowful and why he requested that Peter, James, and John watch with him. It's interesting that Jesus told them to watch. That's another way of describing prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. The word watch or watchful simply means to stay awake. Don't go to sleep while you're praying. Who hasn't been in a Bible study or prayer meeting when all of a sudden you hear someone snoring? But there's more to the concept than simply not sleeping. Watchfulness not only refers to staying awake physically, but also to constant spiritual alertness. We need to be alert and aware of what needs to be prayed about in life. That's the way Peter uses the term in 1 Peter 4 7 when he said, Be sober minded and watch unto prayer. You can't help but wonder when Peter wrote those words if his mind was going back to this event. Be sober minded and watch unto prayer. In other words, look for the things you ought to be praying about in life, keep your eyes open. The evil one wants to make us careless in our praying. He can do this in several ways. Number one, we can just ignore prayer. Or number two, we can become distracted from it so that our minds wander. Or number three, we can get preoccupied with praying about the wrong things. Only physical things, not spiritual things. So that's why we're exhorted to watch, be alert, We need to make sure that we don't ignore prayer, and we need to make sure we don't get distracted from it so that our minds wander, and we need to make sure that we don't get preoccupied with praying about the wrong things. Peter, James, and John basically did all three of those things. They ignored prayer and slept instead. Their minds didn't focus on the need for prayer. And if they prayed, they prayed about the wrong things, because what they should have been praying about was what Jesus had just warned them about in verse 27. He had just told them that they were going to forsake him on this night. So they should have been praying to the Father for the spiritual strength to stand strong. He also told them that he, the shepherd, was going to be smitten. So they should have been praying for what Jesus was facing. That should have been their focus. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, stay here and watch. Be alert. Think about what I've just said to you. You're all going to forsake me. I will be smitten this night. So in verse 35, Mark tells us, he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Throughout Hebrew scripture, in passages such as Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 23, and Habakkuk 2, a cup... Is often the symbol of divine wrath against sin. For example, Isaiah 51, 17 refers to those who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. In Jeremiah 25, 15, the Lord God refers to this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. That's why Jesus uses this wording here in verse 36. He would rather do anything than drink the cup of his father's wrath. He had never disobeyed the father or displeased the father. But he was facing a time when he who knew no sin would become sin for us. And when he became sin for us, he would drink the cup of the father's wrath. That's what he's referring to here in this verse. He is basically saying, Father, if there's any way we can accomplish redemption another way, let's do it a different way. But he knew there was no other way. Which is why he followed by saying, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus said that, Please understand that he was not implying that the father was forcing him to do something he was unwilling to do. He was simply expressing the fact that in his role as the incarnate son, he was submitting to the father's will even though he agonized over the fact that he and the father would experience such horror when he would drink in full the cup of God's righteous wrath. That's what he was praying about and to be delivered from. Verse 37 tells us, Then he came and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Remember, Peter was the first one to say that he would never forsake the Lord, that he would never deny the Lord, which is probably why Jesus addressed this question to Peter. Jesus had simply asked him and the others to watch and pray. But they failed to do that even for an hour. Luke twenty-two forty-five 45 tells us that the disciples were sleeping from sorrow. In other words, they were so exhausted from their sorrow that they couldn't hold their eyes open. That's an interesting statement because it seems that prior to this evening and even earlier in the evening, they were completely oblivious to anything that was really going on or anything that was coming down the pike. Jesus had tried to warn them that all this was coming, that he was going to die. He was going to be delivered to the, uh, to the chief priests and then to the Gentiles, the Romans, etc. He had tried to tell them, but it seems like they never got it. However, maybe Jesus' words about his death and their their forsaking of him were finally beginning to register with them. It seems that at this point, the emotional strain was also wearing on the disciples. By the way, have you ever been like this? Have you ever been so emotionally spent that you couldn't stay awake? I remember only one such occasion in my life. Usually when I am emotionally distressed about something, it's the opposite. I can't sleep. I lie awake and I think about the issue and I chew on it and I wrestle with it and I worry about the issue. And if I worry long enough, I might get around to praying about the matter. Now don't look at me like that. You do the same thing. My point is that my usual response to mental distress and turmoil is to stay awake because I'm unable to sleep. But on one occasion, I went through something that was such a strain that it wore me out to the point of falling asleep from emotional exhaustion, and I couldn't stay awake. That seems to be what is happening here. The disciples were so emotionally wiped out that they just fell sound asleep when they should have been watching and praying. In verse 38, Jesus says again to them, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus acknowledged that there was a part of them that wanted to watch and pray, but their flesh, that is their body, was winning out over their inner desire to watch and pray. When Jesus uses the word flesh here in this sentence, don't take it to mean the sinful nature. I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. Sometimes the word flesh is used that way in Scripture But this context does not point to that meaning. Jesus is merely referring to the weaknesses that come with human infirmity. That's why the NIV translates the word body here in this passage instead of using the term flesh. Our bodies get tired and get hungry and get thirsty and get worn out and get weak Now, those things are not wrong in themselves, but they can lead us to do wrong. For example, it's not sinful that we get tired. That's because we just have human frail bodies. We get tired. It's not sinful that we get tired, but when we get tired, that can lead us to sin. Have you ever been tired and as a result... You snapped at someone or yelled at someone or berated someone. That's wrong. That's sin. It isn't sinful to get tired. But it is sinful to angrily lash out at other people. Yell at them, scream at them, cuss at them, whatever. That's just one way the weakness of our bodies can lead us to sin if we aren't careful. It's not sinful that we get hungry. God has made us this way. We need food for fuel to be able to to live life. It's not sinful to get hungry. But when we get hungry, that can lead us to sin. Have you ever been hungry and as a result become irritable, grouchy, moody? Have you ever been hungry and as a result demanded your way or... Forced your way in order to get something to eat quickly? That's wrong. It isn't sinful to get hungry. But it is sinful to be rude. Or ill-mannered. Or self-centered. That's another way the weakness of our bodies can lead us to sin if we aren't careful. That's what Jesus is referring to here. Inwardly, the disciples wanted to watch and pray... But the weakness of their bodies led them to give in to their desire for sleep instead of prayerfully supporting Jesus. He tells them watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Temptation is coming right around the corner. You're going to be forced with a choice to flee and forsake me or stand with me. You should be praying. And there was a part of them that wanted to be praying. But the weakness of their bodies won out. Verse 39 tells us, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Beloved, don't pass over the agony of this event. We often think about and meditate on the agony of Jesus on the cross. And well, we should. But this is a foretaste of that very same agony. Jesus detested the thought of being out of fellowship with his Father and being out of harmony with his Father. That's all he had ever known in his his life and throughout all eternity past. But now he faced the indescribable agony of drinking the Father's cup of holy wrath. If you or I ever had to do that, it would be an awful thing, but it would not be an unnatural experience. What I mean is, because we are sinners, we deserve the Father's wrath. So it would not be unnatural. It would be, in a sense, expected. But Jesus was so pure and perfect and holy and flawless that the thought of him facing the Father's wrath was an oxymoron. It was an utter contradiction. That's why you see this severe and profound struggle coming out in his prayers. Verse 40 tells us, And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. The weakness of their bodies won again. They didn't exercise the spiritual strength to overcome the infirmities or frailness of their bodies. They fell asleep again. Jesus was alone in this struggle. It seems from the way the passage reads that he wanted and longed for their support and their prayers. But he didn't get that from his men. It is a pathetically sad scene. The one who had given and given and given throughout his life and throughout his ministry didn't have anyone to give him the support and the prayer he longed for in his greatest hour of agony. Have you ever been burdened about something, so burdened about something that you can't think of any new way to pray about it? You find yourself praying the same thing over and over again? In fact, I remember one lady telling me when she was going through, it was a horrendous situation, that she would go into her room to pray and she just would say, same prayer. That's all she knew to say. Same prayer. Lord, I don't know what else to say. It's the same prayer. Multiply the weight of that burden a thousandfold. And that's what Jesus was going through in the garden. He was so burdened and so weighed down that he just kept praying the same thing over and over again. But this was no vain repetition. These were words uttered from a broken heart. He said it and said it and said it again. And when he knew it was time for the dominoes to begin falling, he went back to wake his disciples. Verse 41 tells us, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. It hit me as I contemplated this verse and this story that Jesus experienced what you and I often experience in that he experienced the dreadful silence of heaven. There is no reassure, reassuring voice from heaven no dove descends like at his baptism it's just total silence and jesus must walk through what is before him beloved it is often that way for us is it not we cry out to god in our pain and there is no voice no dove no angels, and we must face whatever it is we are walking through. But the Lord walks with us through it. Jesus was alone. Not only did Jesus have to face the agony of the cross alone, he also had to face the venom of unjust leaders and sinful soldiers when he was betrayed by someone to whom he had given so much. It's important, very important, extremely important, that we understand that there was a sense in which Judas, the betrayer, was a friend of Jesus. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That last phrase means, he kicked me when I was down. He lifted up his heel against me. He kicked me while I was down. That's what Judas did to Jesus. Jesus has just been in agony to the point of sweating drops of blood. And when he arose, Judas came up to him to betray him with a kiss. You talk about kicking Jesus when he was down? That was it. It's exactly what Judas did. And Jesus knew it was coming. He says here in verse 41, the hour has come. In other words, now it is time for everything to begin moving toward the cross. So in verse 42, Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What a pitiful statement. The perfect, matchless, flawless, generous, magnanimous Son of God is about to be turned over to religious and civil leaders who have no conscience regarding the legality of what they would do. He is about to be turned over to brutal soldiers who will show no mercy in the cruel and barbaric treatment they will inflict upon him. He is about to experience what no man has ever or will ever experience because he is about to drink the full cup of the wrath of God in only a few short hours. And he he knows all of it is coming. No wonder the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus understands and Jesus cares. He has been through more hurt and more heartache than we will ever experience. And he was a man. Don't ever forget that. Yes, he was God, but he was fully and truly human. He experienced heartache and grief and brokenheartedness beyond description. That's why the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus knows what it is like, he understands, and he cares. Turn with me to Hebrews 2 as we close this morning. Over near the end of the New Testament. Before the book of James. Before First and 2 Peter. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> verse 18. Verse 18 says... For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. How long has it been since you've seen that verse? Jesus can help you when you are tempted, Jesus can help you when you are suffering, because he has suffered and he was tempted. He knows what it's like to have your heart broken. He knows what it is like to be in mental agony. He knows what it is like to feel like you are stretched beyond measure, that you just cannot take anymore. He can help you. Turn to Him. Look at chapter 4, just a couple pages over to the right. Chapter 4, verse... 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin." That verse reads somewhat awkwardly because it's a double negative. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Double negatives aren't good in English, but they are in Greek. In Greek, it is a strong way to affirm something very positive. So this verse is saying, we do. We do have a high priest who can sympathize. Get that truth in your heart. We do have a high priest that can sympathize. He knows. He understands. He can relate to what you are going through in life. He has walked through it. He has been there. He has been brokenhearted. He has been grieved. He has been to the point where he felt like he was going to die from mental anguish. So turn to him for grace. As verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's the way the songwriter said it, and it can't be said any better. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes to contemplate what you have viewed this morning in God's Word, seeing the agony of the Lord Jesus the brokenheartedness of the Lord Jesus, the anguish of the Lord Jesus. It's a reminder to us that he's been there. He knows. He understands. He cares. So turn to him. Turn to him this morning and every morning. And not only when you're walking through severe trial or immense grief, but always, always turn to him. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, he is not your great high priest, but he can be your great high priest if you will humble yourself before him and in simple childlike faith ask Jesus Christ to save you, to forgive you, to change you. I promise you, he will hear. Father, as we contemplate that night so long ago when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was sweating, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because of his agony, it's impossible for us to completely relate but it's not impossible for him to relate to us. And that's what you want us to understand. May that truth grip our hearts always and never leave us. That we do have a great high priest who can understand and sympathize with our weaknesses. So may we turn to him always in our grief, in our pain, in our joys, in our sorrows. May we turn to him. And in closing, we pray for anyone among us who has never turned to him, never turned to him in faith to trust him for salvation. May your spirit draw that man or woman this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.